A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Yehuda Geberer, Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by t- generously sponsored by Teach Coalition, who reminds us all that New York City elections are coming up, and one of the most important positions in the United States, and maybe even the world, is the mayor of New York City. If you remember from uh, when, Z- this is my edition, when uh, Zadie was young, the Shmuel Kunda, was in number two, I think, so the Jewish vote is crucial to winning the election. So, with the New York City election day around the corner, it's time to drop the excuses and vote. When it comes to the funding for our schools and communities, elected officials pay attention to the people who vote. Communities who vote are communities that are heard. So it's very simple. If you're not vo- voting, you don't have a voice, and uh, that's not something uh, you want to have those. Uh, you want to have those results afterwards. So make sure you vote early by mail or on June 22nd on election day. If you have questions or need help with your voter plan. Call or email the Orthodox Union's Teach New York NYS New York State at 646-459-5162. That's 646-459-5162 or email friendm at teachcoalition.org. That's F-R-A-N-D-M at teachcoalition.org. And of course, I'll post uh, this information in the text uh, of the um, of Jewish History Soundbites. When you vote, elected officials take note. You know, in Israel, elections are every six months, so it's boring. But in most uh, places around the world, it's once every several years, so it's very exciting. So let's go. There are many Jewish History Soundbites listeners out there who are New Yorkers. And even the ones who aren't New Yorkers, you for sure know someone who lives in New York City. So even for those Jewish History Soundbites listeners who are not from New York, go call up your friends and relatives in New York City and tell them to go vote. Think about it from the perspective of Jewish history. This is a privilege that Jews for hundreds of years fought for and dreamed to have the opportunity. So now you have it. Go ahead and use it. Now, speaking of voting, we're talking about a fascinating story of an election uh, today, that of uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Rubinstein and the Vilna chief rabbi controversy, which took place in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Um, interesting, Rabbi David Kamenetsky and his monumental work on Rabbi Chaim Weiser. So already in volume one, he gives us a little teaser. It's a great book in Hebrew, but worth the read. 
Um, even in volume one, which is already out and fantastic, it provides a bit of information, which I liberally use, so he gets credit for a lot of what's here, and other sources, of course, as well. But uh, I'm very excited for his future volumes, which is definitely going to be you know, chapters on uh, uh, in the coming volumes about this uh, uh, dispute. So there's... Let's take it take it a step back. How do we get to the 1920s? There's an old rabbinate dispute in in the 18th century, which lasted for 30 years, much longer than this one, and that was about the rabbinate of Reb Shmuel ben Avigdor from 1762 until his passing in 1791. There was this long and bitter and horrible uh, dispute uh, between the Vilna Jewish community, backed by the Vilna Gain. Uh, against um, uh, the rabbi, Reb Shmuel ben Avigdor, um, who was backed by um, the working class of the city, the Hasidim in the city, many other Lithuanian rabbis throughout, uh, uh, it was then still Poland for the most part. Um, and, um, and at the end of this long and whole story, and maybe we'll get to the Reb Shmuel ben Avigdor story someday as well, it's a fascinating story, but at the end of that whole dispute, there was a decision made by the Jewish community of Vilna that as a result of the bitterness and everything, there's going to be no more rabbi in Vilna forever. That's it. No more. No rabbi anymore. Just the Vad Harabonim, the, the, uh, the, like a, a group of rabbis, the Bezdin, they were the Dayanim, the judges of the Bezdin. There was a Magid. So there was many, many prestigious rabbinical figures, but no official chief rabbi of the city. There's a few legends associated with it. I'm not sure how true they are. I've got to check it out a bit more. But didn't have a chance to, but I'm, I'm assuming that there's a kernel of truth in this as well, that they placed a stone and Reb Shmuel ben Avigdor's place to the left of the Arain in the Vilna Great Synagogue as a symbol that there will be no more rabbi of the city. There's also once an almost exception when they tried allegedly, again, you have to check this out, allegedly they tried bringing in Rabbi Kiva Eger in the 1830s to become the rabbi in Vilna, so they were going to make an exception. That didn't work out, of course, and Rabbi Kiva Eger remained in, in Posen, Poznan, where he's buried. Um, so now, with that in the background, so there's no chief rabbi, and there can't be a chief rabbi in Vilna. So Rabbi Chaim Eisegrajensky, who's the head of the Bezdin, he almost becomes the chief rabbi he, to, as an exception to this rule. In 1907, he's already the uh, on the Bezdin as the, part of the Vat Harabonim, the, the group of rabbis who, who, who were the religious leaders of the town. He was there from 1887, already two decades, and well-respected and renowned, and, and, uh, and it's only 1907, you know, this is, this is, even before he, he really uh, lived out in his fame and prestige in, in his later years. And he's offered the rabbinate in several places, and, and he's even offered Yerushalayim, He's offered in Grudny, he's offered in, in, in Kovnen, offered in several places, but one of the places that he turned down was St. Petersburg, the capital of the empire, the capital of the Russian empire. And he turns down the opportunity to have the St. Peter, Petersburg rabbinate, which is arguably the highest paid rabbi in the entire Russian empire, and he decides to stay in Vilna. And out of a sense of gratitude, the heads of the Vilna Jewish community uh, offered him the official Vilna rabbinate to renew it, uh, even though against tradition and against what everything that was about to never have a chief rabbi, they were going to renew it just for him. <coughs> excuse me. And he turns it down to not to break... <coughs> excuse me. He would turn it down to not break tradition. He would one day come to regret that decision later as a result of the dispute which took place in the 1920s. And, uh, and he said at that time, during the dispute, he said that uh, he said this to his brother-in-law, Bitsa Kosovsky, 
who recorded it down for posterity, he said that had he had the ability to foresee future events, then he would have taken the position as chief rabbi in 1907 when it was offered to him for the honor of Torah and for the honor of the rabbinate and to prevent the terrible dispute and the Chil Hashem, the desecration of God's name which resulted. So uh, so testified his brother Ritzel Kosovsky. By the way, it seems that uh, in this testimony we see you know, you see that Chaimaizer did not ascribe uh, Ruach HaKadosh, uh, uh, you know, a certain uh, ability to see the future, uh, uh, you know, a sp- spiritual ability. He wasn't, a, he wasn't a, I guess he wasn't a Hasidic uh, tzaddik, he was a Litvish rabbi, but he said, had he had the ability to foresee the future, I guess that means he did not have the ability to see the future. All right, that's uh, a side point. Either way, so, um, Reb Chaim Eiser, even though he had turned down this position, and though he regretted turning it down, but in the interim, he was known all the following years as the unofficial chief rabbi, unofficial rabbi of Vilna, and definitely the most respected member of its rabbinical team. That's that's uh, the next intru- next uh, next point. And the next stage we have to get to is the institution of the Rav Mitam, the Rav Mitam, and the job of the Rav. What's the Rav Mitam? The czarist government in Russia. Uh, had a, a law that every Jewish community had to have a Rav Mitam, Mitam the government, the government rabbi. Now the government rabbi um, was recognized by the government as someone who had some sort of diploma or d- graduated from an official rabbinical seminary or had a general education and was qualified. And he spoke Russian and, and, and could be, and basically it was a, it, it, it evolved, I don't know if it was envisioned originally like that, but it evolved into a very bureaucratic position. You were a government bureaucrat, and you were in, it was not seen at all uh, as a rabbinical uh, figure at all. It was, for the most part, uh, someone who was unaff- unaffiliated with religion altogether and completely unknowledgeable in any rabbinical uh, um, uh, in halacha and in Torah and in, in, in scholarship and anything, and, ve- and for the most part, not even religious. And their job was to register births and marriages and deaths uh, in the official register for the Russian government uh, purposes. They had official license. And, uh, and that's, that's what, for the most part, the Rav Mitam was. And every community paid out of the salary because of the requirement of the government to pay the, uh, the Rav Mitam. And then they also, if they could afford it, funded a, a real rabbi who was a scholarly and respected uh, religious rabbi. So there was always these two so-called rabbis. There was one real rabbi, and then there was the Rav Mitam, the, the, the bureaucrat uh, rabbi. Once in a while, so first of all, in general, the, 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 the institution of the Rav Mitam is such a fascinating story, and it's, it's very broad, and there's a lot to talk about it, so it definitely needs an episode on its own. If that's something that, uh, that interests you, then you can sponsor it, and let me know. Um, and it's a huge story. So the, but as it happened, that sometimes the Rav Mitam were also qualified. It was rare. But once in a while, there was a Rav Mitam who was also happened to be a, a Talmudic scholar and a rabbinical leader. And they could once in a while serve in both capacities. So that also happened. So that's, that's in general, and that's you know, very shortly in general. We'll have to, again, like I said, we'll have to get back to that another time. But now we go back to Vilna. So Vilna, up until 1910, there was different Rav Mitams. There was the fellow by the name of Dr. Avram Gordon at the end of the 19th century. Uh, there was Mordechai Nemzer. And then there was a very interesting individual named uh, Dr. Yehuda Leib Cantor, who actually spoke publicly in shuls. Uh, he didn't just have a bureaucratic position. And he spoke in Yiddish, not in Russian, um, or in any other language. German, some, some rabbi spoken, uh, even in Russia. So he was a bit different than the average Rav Mitam. But in around 1910, he left for Riga. 
and the one who is the, uh, uh, the, the, the leading candidate in the elections, the upcoming elections for the Rav Mitam position in 1910 was a fellow by the name of Rebbechaim Chernovitz, who was known by his pen name Rav Tsair from Odessa, and he tried winning the election. Now, Chaim Chernovitz, this fellow, was disliked by the religious establishment. He was you know, a liberal and a reformer, and later on he moved to the United States, and he, it seems like he actually was reformed. He was in Hebrew Union College. Uh, not Hebrew, I'm sorry. He was with, sorry, take that back. It was Stephen Wise or something. I don't, I don't remember what exactly institution he was affiliated with over there. Um, um, either way, but he was he was seen as a threat. He was seen as, you know, he's also popular, he's charismatic. He wrote well, he spoke well, he had educational institutions. He was the Rav Mitam. He was the government rabbi in Odessa for many, many years. And he was very popular there and he was trying to become to Vilna. So the, there was a lot of opposition from the, very strong opposition from Rechaim Meiser-Grzynski, who was the head of the uh, the Vada Rabbanim, the, the rabbinical uh, uh, group who, who, who ran the religious life in the town, and the traditional establishment. Um, they considered that he was both a liberal and, and, and he wouldn't be just a clerk type of, of Rav Mitam, who would be less of a danger, less of a threat. He actually would try to serve in the capacity as, as if he was a, a regular rabbi also, so they did not want him to be to get this position. So what Reb Chaim Weiser and others uh, push for is to get a fellow by the name of Reb Yitzchak Rubinstein appointed in 1910 to become the Rav Mitam, to become this government rabbi, primarily to prevent Chaim Chernovitz from becoming the Rav Mitam. So ironically, Reb Chaim Weiser supported the appointment of Rubinstein to become this government rabbi. So who is this Reb Yitzchak Rubinstein? So he was a, a, a young Talmudic scholar. He studied in Slabatki Yeshiva, and he was a member of the elite Yad HaChazaka, the famous 14 individuals who the altar of Slabatki Rav sent to Slutsk uh, to open the Yeshiva in Slutsk under the leadership of Rabbi Zal Meltzer in 1897. And those 14 leading students of Slabatka, most of them became famous rabbis afterwards. So one of those 14 was Rabbi Rubinstein. So he's a you know a young budding Talmud Chacham, a very prestigious, learned... Slabatka, Slutsk, and then he eventually has the rabbinate in, in, in Henechisik, a little town in the Crimea down in the south of the empire, and he knew Russian, and he had an official diploma, so he was also eligible, eligible to serve as a Rav Mitam, as a government rabbi. At the same time, he was a Slabatka alumnus and a Talmud Chacham, so he was kind of both. He had the ability to, to have both. And he was affiliated with the Mizrahi, who was a Zionist too, and he was hired to ensure that Chernovitz would lose. And he won, wins, and, and Rubinstein wins this hotly contested Rav Mitam election in 1910 with the support of the Vilna Rabbinate and Rabchaim Weiser. He initially just kept official business, which what he was, what he was uh, hired to do. And he represented the community uh, to the government, and he was involved in social and charitable communal endeavors, and he was very well respected by the community. What happens is, is World War I and its aftermath changes the whole picture, leads to a chain of events that, when taken together, change the entire context of the Vilna Rabbinate and set the stage for the disaster. And let's go through the several things that happened over the course of World War I and its aftermath that, 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 that led to this result. Number one, Reb Chaim Weiser was forced, because of the war's circumstances, he was in danger of arrest, because of the czars, whatever, uh, whole, whole story, he, he, Reb Chaim Weiser was in danger and he had to flee. He left Vilna, he was a refugee, first in Homel, and then deep down in Yakhtarenislav in, in, in Ukraine. And there he was very active in leadership, in, in Psak, in, in schools, education, in charity, in politics. Great story, but that's part of Reb Chaim Weiser's life, so one, to, one, to, one day we'll, we'll get to that too, but not for now. So that's what, he's out, he's not in Vilna, he's in Yakhtarenislav. He returns to Vilna only some time after World War I. 
In the meantime, Rubenstein was able, Rabbi Rubenstein was able to stay in Vilna, and he emerged as a community leader, as a spiritual leader, as a leading member of the rabbinical board of the Vararabonim. He's an activist on behalf of the poor and the refugees during wartime. He wins the hearts of the Vilna masses, very, very active in, 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 in trying to ease the, the wartime hardships for the masses and his charitable endeavors, social endeavors. He was a very devoted and capable leader during a time of crisis, and he definitely deserves an enormous amount of credit for that and, uh, and emerges from that as, as a leading uh, rabbi and leader in the Vilna Jewish community. Number three, what happens is Reb Chaim Eisen returns to this situation, and Rubenstein is not exactly relinquishing his new position as as the primary leader of Vilna. Uh, so there's this this bit of tension there at the beginning. The fourth thing that happens, which is very important for the context, not just between these two individuals. Um, at the end of the day, it's a dispute between you know people and institutions, and and and, and not just those two individuals. So the fourth thing that happens is the politicization of Eastern European Jewry post-World War I. Everyone has to belong to a political party, and everything is about politics afterwards. And everything is, is, is furthering a political agenda. And that's very, very important to understand. It's crucial, actually, because there's no way to, to, to get the picture of what's really happening without understanding the politics and the political parties that's, that's furthering and fueling the whole uh, issue. Number five is the most important factor. And as in many instances in Jewish history, the most crucial factor has nothing to do with Jews or decisions made by Jews, but rather the larger geopolitical external factors beyond their control by the larger non-Jewish world. And it's very important to keep that in mind when observing the larger context of Jewish history. In general, it's not in a vacuum. It's always impacted by the larger picture and the swirling events. And that, in this case, was Poland's forcibly taking the Vilna district from Lithuania after they had gained their independence. 1920-21, they go to war with Lithuania, and they seize the Vilna and its environs, and that area is incorporated into the Second Polish Republic during the interwar period. So Vilna all of a sudden now is in Poland. And what does Poland do? In the mid-1920s, the Polish government requires the Jewish communities, the Kahals, to go to elections to select the chief rabbi. And Vilna, which is now situated in Poland, has to break their old tradition to comply with the law, because that's the Polish law, so you got to do it. So now all of a sudden they need a chief rabbi. And it was this legislation and the borders which establishes the context for the controversy because otherwise it would never have been able to happen. And now we get to the political alignments. Reb Chaim Grzynski is, of course, one of the leaders of Agudis Yisrael, the new religious party that has been founded and, and gaining traction in Poland at the time. On the, on the other hand, Rubinstein, Rabbi Rubinstein is the founder of the Vilna branch of the Mizrahi. And he's one of its representatives in, in the same, in the Polish parliament. So Rabbi Yitzchak Rubinstein is a member of the Polish parliament for the Mizrahi. So both of them are politically active, and therefore both of their political parties are involved as well. And it's now perceived as a political victory for the respective parties as well. So who's going to control the rabbinate? And then and, and who's, who's more prestigious and who's more in control, who's more power? And the scene like that, so there's lots at stake here, and more than meets the eye than just who's the more competent rabbi, but it's really, there's a lot of, you know, uh, po- political um, power, control, pride, and, and all that, and we know that when politics gets mixed in, how wonderful things can be between Jews. Uh, so there's the chief rabbi elections. In 1928, there are Kehillah elections first, uh, the communal, Jewish community elections. The non-traditional elements. One, of course, because Vilna by then had an overwhelming majority who were non-Orthodox uh, Jews, uh, you know, 
I wouldn't say assimilated, but they wouldn't be involved in the kahal, wouldn't be involved in the Jewish kahila if they were. But it was the non-Orthodox, and, and it was the overwhelming majority of the Vilna Jewish community. The Reish HaKohol, the head of the Jewish community, was a fascinating individual named Dr. Yaakov Vygotsky, who is a doctor, he's a gynecologist. He'd gone to college, university in St. Petersburg. He was a Yiddish writer for, the, for Heint and for other publications. He was a Zionist leader, one of the biggest, biggest interwar Zionist leaders. He was secular, obviously, and one of the most respected leaders of pre-war Vilna. Actually, a very, very prestigious Vilna and, uh, leader and an impressive personality. He was a member of the Polish parliament, parliament for, the, for the same, for the, uh, for the Zionist party. And he was later killed by the Nazis when he was 86 years old, a very old man. Um, so he's a, a, you know, a special person also. Shortly afterwards, after this, uh, this election of the Kahal, they were ordered by the Polish authorities to appoint the chief rabbi. And the, the ones who vote are the members of the Kahal, not the gener- Vilna general Jewish community. So it's not a general election, it's the members of the Kahal voting. On November 5th, 1928, is the election of the chief rabbi. There are 15 members of the Kahal, the Zionists, the Bund, the Mizrahi, the workers' parties who voted for Rabbi Rubinstein, and eight, which was basically the Aguda and other religious members who voted for Chaim Weiser, it's a clear majority, voted for Rabbi Rubinstein. The rationale was Rubinstein's track record from uh, World War I. And, and, and Rabbi Chaim Weiser's, uh, what it was going for him was that he was the senior rabbi in town and the undisputed leader and an unofficial rabbi for decades. So that was the, the conflict there. Uh, for the traditional elements, it was considered no less than a disgrace and a chutzpah that Rabbi Chaim Weiser had not been elected. So they tried to overturn it uh, by going first, tried to get, get that to come to come to Besden. Then they applied to the Polish authorities. They also tried to bring it to court. Uh, they tried everything, and uh, further claims were made for each side. Rabbi Rubinstein's supporters said, "What do you mean, World War One? The leadership? He's also Talmud Chacham." Rabbi Meizer's supporters said, "He's a senior rabbi. This is not a political position; it's a rabbinical position." Rabbi Rubinstein is too liberal; it's detrimental to the institution of the rabbinate. He's going to be under pressure from the secularist elements and lead to reform in the Jewish community. And the big claim against him was ingratitude. Reb Chaim Eiser Grajinsky had gotten him elected as the Rav Mitam, as the government rabbi in 1910. And with his support, he was in Vilna in the first place. And now Rabbi Rubinstein is running against him as the chief rabbi? It didn't make any sense. And to people, they saw that as a betrayal. And the one who led the protest um, was the Chafetz Chaim. Rabbi Chaim's response, he led the protest for the honor of Torah, for the honor of the rabbinate, and the honor of Rabbi Chaim Weiser, as the great and undisputed Torah leader which he was. And a few weeks after the election, the Chavetz Chaim publicized a public protest in the religious uh, paper Dasvart of the Vada Yeshivas, and he entitled it El Baina Shel Torah, the, the defending the, 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 the shame, the, the Elbain of, of the Torah. And this was the first volley in, in this dispute. He explained the issue and, and, and how important it was imperative that people got involved. He called on everyone to join in the protest and reverse the results. He didn't say that Reb Chaim Eiser really won. I just want to point that out. He just felt that he should have won. Okay, that's uh, he didn't say that the that that that, that the vote was uh, was skewed or cheated and, and that Reb Chaim Eiser really won. He just said that the appropriate thing should have been was that Reb Chaim Eiser should have won. Either way, a few days later, Hill Zeitlin, who's another fascinating personality who will have to return to one day, he wrote in Der Moment, the Warsaw-based Yiddish paper, one of them, that he doubts that the Chavetz Chaim had even penned that protest. It doesn't make any sense because it's full of Lashon Hara, which the Chavetz Chaim is so known to be careful about. So how could it be that the Chavetz Chaim really wrote? It must be that someone forged it in his name. So the Chavetz Chaim goes ahead and responds with another announcement a few days later in Das Vart. 
And he said, I heard people doubt that it's me because it's Lashon Hara. There's no issue here. Because what's at stake? Our very religion is at stake. It's being destroyed. And this is so important that Rabbi Chaim is, is the rabbi and, 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 not, and not Rabbi Rubenstein. This is a terrible thing. This is not Lashon Hara. And and uh, and uh, amazing thing, both things. What he wrote there, it, it's it, it, I think I believe they're both available online. Uh, it's very fascinating to see that both of them are very strongly worded. Chavitz Chaim felt very very strongly about this issue. He then hosted a meeting. He keeps on going. He hosted a meeting in his home in Radna, attended primarily by many of the prominent Russia yeshiva of that day. Some rabbis also who then issued a proclamation of protest together jointly uh, on behalf of Reb Chaim Meiser. Um, so the controversy in Vilna itself, the Vadhar Abanim, all the rabbis at the time protested the decision. The heads of the main Sadaka organization protested the decision and, and, and refused to work with Rabbi Rubenstein, making it difficult for him to do his job. Interesting, in Vilna itself, the opposition was led by Rameir Karelitz, a member of the Vadhar Abanim, who was, you know, of course, the son of the Kasavarov. Um, but he was also the son-in-law of the Cheshek Shleimer, of Shleimer Akayin, who had previously been a Dain and one of the most leading and respected uh, uh, rabbinical leaders in, in Vilna. Rameir is a very interesting story and career for another time, and he was assisted in this, uh, uh, this whole endeavor and this whole protest uh, uh, by a very surprising source, his brother. His brother, I believe his younger brother, if not mistaken, of Ramishaya Karelitz, later known as the Chazanish, who was living in Vilna at the time, completely anonymous, completely unknown, anonymous Talmud Chacham, completely out of the public eye, uh, living quietly in Vilna, who was around 50 years old at the time. And this is really a historical moment, because this would be the first time in his life that the Chazanish involved himself in a public communal issue, that he got involved in protesting on behalf of Rebbe Moiser and against the uh, election for uh, Rabbi Rubenstein. Um, so it's a, a fascinating uh, side point there as well with the Chazanish's involvement and it's a turning point in, in what would be ultimately become his leadership in the next generation. It starts here. Um, Reb Meir Karelitz ultimately, because of the whole story, had to leave Vilna. He assumed the rabbinate in Lechowitz until moving to Palestine in 1941 to escape Europe during the war. So as a testimony to Reb Chaim Meiser himself, his noble character is that on a personal level, he tried to have an amicable relation and working relationship with uh, Rubenstein, which is a fascinating uh, to thing to, to, to attest to, to Chaim Weiser. The aftermath uh, was that several very prominent rabbis in the Mizrahi publicly left the Mizrahi as a result of the dispute because they saw the Mizrahi as the one leading this whole thing to in, in, in place uh, Rabbi Rubenstein as the chief rabbi against Reb Chaim Weiser. So as a protest, many of the most prominent rabbis in the Mizrahi at the time left and uh, this to, to, as a protest for for uh, for uh, Reb Chaim Weiser in his honor, including the Marcheshes, Reb Hanach several others. This dispute solidified the lines between Aguda and the Mizrahi. Very very interesting juncture in history. Um, somewhat the, the law, those lines were somewhat blurred until this point because they're both very religious parties. Both had very prestigious rabbis at their helm, uh, and uh, and this kind of divided them. This made that like that final split, which had. You know, decades of of of, of repercussions and and, and and memory. There were lots of residual resentment and and mistrust that lasted decades, and even carried over to post-war Israel between the two parties. Some of the nasty stuff that went on between the two parties in the 1950s in the state of Israel can be best understood with the Vilna dispute of 1930, 1929, 1930, in the backdrop and in the shadows. So, so it's a which is an amazing thing to keep in mind. 
This is especially true considering that some of them were the same characters involved, such as Romero Karelitz, who was still around the 1950s in Israel. It also divided the Vilna community, and another very interesting byproduct of the dispute was the new prestige that Reb Chaim Weizer held among the t- traditional elements of Jewish Eastern Europe. He became even more renowned as a leader uh, than he was prior, much more so after the whole dispute. He was considered by, by many now the undisputed Torah leader of the generation, such as the power of disputes that it enhances the reputation of, by the ones who support uh, one of the sides. I just want to say uh, one word, uh, if we have a minute or two, about, uh, once we mentioned Rabbi Rubinstein, about his fascinating Rebetzin, his wife, Esther Rubinstein. And she passed away, unfortunately, at a very young age of 42 from some disease in 1924, before this whole story happened. Uh, so Rabbi Rubinstein, who never remarried, was a widower uh, at the time of the story. She was an amazing woman. She was the daughter of a, a Lithuanian rabbi who taught her Torah, uh, and uh, so she was very extremely knowledgeable in Tanakh and Gemara even. She would cite uh, passages from, uh, from the Gemara, from the Talmud, by heart. Uh, Jewish philosophy, general subjects. She got a tutor she, in general subjects, languages. She was a brilliant woman. She was a Zionist activist. Uh, she wrote articles in Hebrew. She was a feminist. She supported women's suffrage, voting rights. Uh, again, talking about elections and voting. So women in New York City got to vote too, right? That's what uh, Esther Rubinstein would say. Uh, the role of women, she would talk about the role of women in modern Jewish life, the role of women in Zionism and rebuilding uh, the Yishuv in, in, in Palestine. She was a social activist, soup kitchens and the charitable work she did during World War I and after. She was a pioneering educator for girls' education. She opened some of the first girls' schools in Vilna and following her passing, a prestigious girls' school in Vilna was named for her. Uh, so she was an amazing woman. She was mourned by the entire community and, um, and honors that had never been before accorded a woman ever in Vilna. Uh, she had eulogies in, in, in the great synagogue of Vilna by great rabbis and Zionist leaders and a memorial book was published in her honor. An amazing thing. Um, so getting back to Rabbi Rubinstein, so uh, he remains as the rabbi and with this you know, tension and in between and limited uh, power and leadership because Rabbi Meiser was still considered by many to be the uh, true leader. So, but that lasted until uh, World War II. And of course, Rabbi Meiser uh, passes away at the outset of the war in Vilna. Uh, he escapes. Um, he himself uh, in 19... Rabbi Rubinstein escaped in the, arriving in the United States in the beginning of 1941. Um, he escaped Vilna after the Soviet takeover before the Nazis' uh, invasion, and he's hired as a rebbe in Re- Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Yitzchak Chanan Aritz, uh, in Yesh- which was Yeshiva College, University, and uh, there he slipped into almost anon- almost anonymous. He was a, kept a very low profile, like this one who's the chief rabbi of Vilna, one of the greatest Jewish communities in the world. All of a sudden was like almost completely off the map. Very interesting uh, ending. Uh, fascinating is that in, in a- on April 19th, 1944, the first anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. It's, it's April 1944. It's still in the midst of World War II. This is before D-Day. This is before the, this is right after the invasion of Hungary, before the deportations of Hungary. This is the first anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. There's a commemorative event in New York City, which itself is a historical curiosity, which perhaps we'll get back to one day. And the the main featured speaker at this event uh, in New York was Rabbi Yitzhak Rubinstein, the chief rabbi of Vilna. And he spoke there, and it was one of his only public appearances in the United States. Uh, there are pictures of it, and it was reported in the newspapers. And he passed away shortly afterwards in October 1945, shortly after the war's end, and buried in Mount Carmel in, in Queens. So this was uh, about that uh, Vilna dispute. Um, Rabbinical dispute. This is uh, Yudi Gebro, Jewish History Soundbites. 
You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGaber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and and uh, lectures, anything else. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.